Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. I'm host and producer Cody Dronick. Tonight, guest host Courtney Dangerville sits down with local poet and writer Rosemary Griebel. And later on in the program, we have a conversation with American writer Jennifer Haig. She tells us about her new novel, Heat and Light. Our show airs at 11 a.m. and 8 p.m. on the third Tuesday of every month. And if you've missed it live, you can look for the podcasts at cjsw.com. Rosemary Griebel was born and raised on the prairies and has worked for the Calgary Public Library for 20 years. Her poems have been published on CBC's radio program Anthology and national journals in Edmonton Transit's Take the Poetry Route series and in chapbooks by Leaf Press. In the second and third years of Freefall Magazine's National Poetry Contest, her poems have won three times. In the second year of the contest, two of her poems, unknown to the judges to be by the same author, tied for first place. Hi everyone, my name is Courtney Dingerville. I'm a guest host today at CJSW Writer's Block Program, and today joining with me is Rosemary Griebel. Hello, Courtney. <laughs> Hi, Rosemary. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Yeah, and I'm here, I'm with your book of poetry called Yes, but I first met you actually at WordFest, which was in Calgary just a little while ago Mm -hmm. for us recording now. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what we were doing? Yes, yeah. So it was a panel where we were celebrating the great Canadian poet Patrick Lane, Mm -hmm. and it was hosted by Sheila Rogers, and his wife, Patrick's wife, Lorna Crozier, was there. It was really a wonderful event. It was. It was so special to be there and to hear the stories about somebody who was almost mythical in Canadian literature. He was. As a man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had such a big reputation Mm -hmm. and really shaped, uh, I would say, poetry, literature in general in Canada. Um, But he certainly was a big figure. When I first met him, which was about in 2004, 2005, he had such a scary reputation. (laughs) He was quite intimidating, but in fact, he was a very gentle, very wise, very generous man who shared his knowledge, which was deep and amazing. That's beautiful. What, when you first met him, how were you involved with, with him? Yeah, so he was offering a course at the University of British Columbia called Booming Ground, and it was a summer program, so uh, I went out there uh, and studied there. I think it was about a week or two weeks. And then when I got back to Calgary, I was so impressed with his teaching I wrote him a letter and said, would you offer an online course? And um, he agreed to do it. And so there were a group of us. Dymphony at some point was involved um, because it continued over a number of years. And so he would send us these meditations. It could be on line breaks. It could be on metaphors, all kinds of things. And sometimes they'd be 20 pages long. And he would provide us with assignments, and it was just really rich and very wonderful. That's amazing. When did you first become aware of his writing? When I was a teenager, (laughs) so a long time ago. um, One of the books that he was involved in was very, very early days. I remember reading this book of poetry and being just 
so impressed with the voice, uh, with with the images. It was just very authentic, and I really, really loved it. Um, but I never thought I would ever meet him. I mean, again, coming back to that idea of him being a mythic figure, yeah. um, I never thought I'd meet him or study with him or become a friend. That's amazing. And it's amazing that it, you got to come full circle and, and to become a friend of his. Yes, yeah. And become involved with his, him in his life. Yeah. That's really beautiful. I know that the I was present at the Patrick Lane tribute at WordFest, and it was almost a little bit magical to be in that room talking about mm -hmm. him. Yeah, there were so many... Of so many people who really loved him uh, were there that evening, and yeah, it was a very special event. Yeah, it certainly was. It truly was. Um, I I knew of Patrick Lane going into the event, not well. I'd say I, I knew of him as a name in Canadian literature and had stumbled across a couple of his poems previously, but you really got a deeper sense of what it is to be a real person at that kind of level of of writing mm -hmm. um, the stories that came out were unbelievable richard harrison gave a really good uh, talk mm -hmm. speech um, yes. about how that impacts how you write did you find that going forward because you you are a poet and mm -hmm. a writer um did you find that that reading that kind of style of poetry and becoming influenced by Patrick Lane influenced in your own work in a way that you can really feel? I think so. And, you know, what was special about Patrick Lane is he never studied writing. He was he was somebody who worked in the lumber mills. He was he had a hard life, uh, a young father who became addicted. He was, you know, involved with alcohol, drugs later on in life. Um, but he always came back to the craft and he really learned how to write by reading the masters mm -hmm. and just practicing. He talks about as a young father coming uh, home after a hard day at the mill and uh, just writing and writing. I mean, he had a a ferocious desire to write poetry. And so I loved having a model. It, it was somebody who hadn't done his PhD. He didn't come from academia. He just came from that deep place where he had that strong desire to write no matter what. And there's something quite beautiful about that. There is for sure. That is true. Would you mind telling me how you came into to writing? Sure. I think it's something I always wanted to do, mm -hmm. even before I could write a word or print a word on a page. I um, I I loved hearing poetry. Um, I pretended to write before I could write. <laughs> and uh, my grandfather, I'm from a big family, a rural family, and my grandfather would recite poetry. Um, and I just, man, my mother was a teacher. And I was always just drawn to it. I loved the sounds of it. I loved the rhythm of it. Um, but as I moved sort of beyond the teenage years, I loved writing and I love poetry so much, I was scared to actually pursue it in a, a real way because I thought I might fail. And it was the thing mm -hmm. I wanted more than anything, S which sounds odd, but... No, it makes so I, sense. <laughs> I, um, I got involved in other careers, but in my, I would say, 40s, I could no longer deny that what I want to do is write poetry more than anything. So that's when I really started doing it in earnest. 
I worked with people like Richard Harrison here in yeah, town. Absolutely. He's one of the professors for um, the class that we did that was involved around the WordFest festival. And uh, Kit Dobson was also mm -hmm. a huge part of that. And yeah. our whole role in WordFest was to really step into the Canadian publishing sphere. And we learned a lot that it's not as glitz and glamorous mm -hmm. as we originally you know, have a preconceived notion about publishing to be. It's actually a very, um, it's a, it's a, it's a love passion. You do it because you yes. love it. Yeah. You don't do it for the money. you're going to get rich <laughs> <Nope>. quick. <laughs> Not everybody is Margaret Atwood. That's it right. Um, and it was really eye opener. But I think the beautiful thing about that festival was the ability to meet new authors mm -hmm. in a way that isn't necessarily like meeting them face to face, although there was that opportunity with book signings, although that is like a really quick <laughs> kind of like, hey, I love your work, sign my book. Yeah. Um, rather than like an actual genuine meeting and a connection. But the connections that were made during those events felt like that. And mm -hmm. I think the Patrick Lane one was one of the ones that struck me the most. There was a couple other ones that came close, but that one really, really touched. You mm -hmm. felt like you were not only getting to know yourself and, and the other authors on stage like Lorna and Richard, um, but you felt like you were really getting to know Patrick in, in a very unique mm -hmm. way. So I know that you talked about this a little bit in that event, but you uh, touched on it a little bit here, um, which is the going back to the masters. So who would you say the masters that you went to most in your writing is are? Certainly in the early days, Walt Whitman. Mm -hmm. um, I loved the fact that he was a democratic poet, um, somebody who loved to just spend time on the streets, talking to the people. Um, every day he would walk from Brooklyn into Manhattan. Um, I loved his big voice. Uh, so he was somebody that I studied a lot. Mm. Um, there were many, many, many writers, and there still are. I'm always discovering new writers, and I read poetry every day. Um, the way I think some people read the Bible every morning, <laughs> I read some poetry. Um, yeah, so there were many masters and continues to be. That's amazing. I know that in your book, there is a poem directly about Walt Whitman. Uh, it's the last poem you have in your book, the walking with Walt Whitman through Calgary's east side on a winter day. Mm -hmm. And then you also reference Emily Dickinson in another poem. Yes. And you go to a lot of, a lot of other influences in your writing. Um, Helen Keller makes mm -hmm. a huge portion of this book. And it was so fascinating because I felt like reading those poems, I was learning to hear and see in a way that I didn't realize I had the capability to do. How did you kind of come to that? Where where did that start, that particular journey with Helen Keller for you? Uh, um, for a number of years, so I work at the Central Library downtown, I manage the services for people with uh, visual, cognitive, hearing disabilities. And in particular, I worked a lot with the blind mm. and was really fascinated about how our different senses open up the world or not. Um, and I just start, I was really taken by her because she was such a strong figure 
um, I think in the film that was made about her with Anne Bancroft and some of the other places, she was kind of sentimentalized. But in fact, she was an amazing woman. She learned how to read Greek. She rode horses. Um, she traveled the world. Um, her, one of her statements was, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Um and so I was just really taken about by her and read a number of works about her as well. It's Yeah, it, it's fascinating. The poem in which you write about her feeling the statue of David mm-hmm. and the smell of the marble, how it sticks in her nostrils, was so, so wonderful because I think when we think about our senses, we think about how devastating it would be to lose them. Exactly, yeah. And we always... We used to play this game when I was a kid, which one would you like to lose the most? And everybody picks smell. And like you're thinking about it, yeah, I'd love to lose my sense of smell. We could never smell the bad things. (laughs) But then you think about how that quality really is engraved and enriched in our, our beings and in our systems. And the line you had about her smelling the marble, the damp marble of the statue of David, I it just struck me and I could almost smell it. Like it, it was so visceral. It was such a wonderful treat to read your work. Mm, thank you. And it is true. She did travel to Italy and she did. They created a platform for her to climb up on so she could feel the statue of David. That's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Think about that happening nowadays. I know. I know. <laughs> it's true. It's almost magical how some of that gets to happen. Um, One thing I I did want to talk to you about was uh, your background. So you are a rural girl. A witch? (laughs) A rural girl. (laughs) You're a girl from the the prairies. A rural. (laughs) Sorry. Um, (laughs) Yes, I am rural. Mm -hmm. I I grew up on the land. I'm still, I feel very connected to the land. It inspires me. Um, I'm, some of my family continue to farm. They're organic farmers and we're very much about, well, we worry a lot about climate change Mm. and the future of the land. Um, I love, I feel a special connection with trees and I live by the Bow River. I feel connection to it. And I think anybody who grows up on the land or has a chance to live on the land is very, very fortunate. Yeah, I I agree completely. There was... um in in your writing, there's such a unique connection to nature and to all things in that. And I remember reading and, and going, that's me. That's how I grew up. My family ha- still has our, our homestead ranch that we've nice. had for a long time. And so got to spend every weekend out there and every summer. And you write about um, the going out and picking stones mm-hmm. as a rite of passage. And I remember that was me chasing bales of hay on the tractor to make sure that I've the, done that, the binding yes. <laughs> all got done. Yeah. Yeah, it was so, it, it's neat because you don't necessarily, I, I feel like there's not necessarily that experience that comes out in a lot of literature because I feel like we get to digest a lot of American literature, mm-hmm. which has a lot more of a, a urban city feel to yeah. it. And I feel like, Canada has such a unique connection to our land. Yeah. That that is what actually binds us as Canadians is is my personal opinion. And it was really lovely to experience it in the way that 
that you allowed us to in your poems. Mm, thank you. Thank you. And I would agree about the lack of writing, perhaps, about mm -hmm. that experience. I remember uh, at a very early age reading W.O. Mitchell and being shocked that somebody was documenting what it's like to really see the prairie, to live on the prairies. And I think, yeah, it's important now. I love that we have so many Indigenous writers who are documenting that experience, that we, that it, just the diversity of yeah. the voices we're hearing in Canada now. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I think it's important that we we really connect the, to that, not only as Canadians, but as as writers and authors, because mm -hmm. it's part of the detriment of the, the city, is it it has this encroaching, and it, it does take over, and they're... You write about fences and like you think about what the world was like before. Yes. We fenced off our properties. And so yeah. it's a very different world that we live in that we always try and hearken back to, mm -hmm. I feel. Um, one of your poems, um, Basho Visits the Prairie, <laughs> um, the, you write, Land once vague and blurred opens a mouth, <laughs> opens with a moth white light, revealing red willow and silver sage sun nodding on oat grass, perhaps a coyote lurking. And I, I read that and I, I just thought how people think the prairies are such a dead and flat and desolate area, but they're so rich and vibrant. And if you mm -hmm. really sit in them and just listen and just are present in that space, it welcomes you in. It's so true. And, you know, there's that idea you have to actually get down on your knees mm -hmm. to see the beauty of the prairies, which... It's true. It's just so rich. It's absolutely stunning. I love the prairies. I couldn't imagine living anywhere else personally. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, not necessarily your your work as a writer, but your actual work, because you mm -hmm. do have a, a brainchild that has been uh, seen to fruition in Calgary, the new public library. Yeah, the mind? new central library. So that project... Um, started in 2004, mm -hmm. so a long time ago. Um, and I was lucky to be involved with the project throughout its entire life. And it went through many different stages. And I think, you know, we never, though we had great hopes for it, it has exceeded our hopes in terms of the number of visitors, in terms of just the beauty of the building, uh, and in terms of what it's allowed us to do in that library. It's amazing. It is. Walking into that space for the first time, because you, you see it from the outside and you go, it's an average building size. And you yeah. walk in and it feels almost the way a cathedral feels. Ah, that's so good you say that, because we did talk about that mm -hmm. a lot. And I think another important thing is that a really fundamental principle when we were thinking about it is that the building should dignify everyone who comes in. Yes. Like it shouldn't make you feel stupid or that you don't belong. doesn't matter who you are, you belong there. So that was a really important principle. And then before the doors even opened, we did a major smudge Indigenous blessing. And that idea of kindness was fundamental to the very opening of the building. Yeah, I I think it has a very kind feeling in it. Like, you know how you walk into some spaces and you, you get an immediate reaction that yeah. that that animalistic instinct tells you what this space is yeah. going to be about and it felt safe mm -hmm. it felt like a place you could find a corner to hide in if you needed to yeah. but that you could wander out and find whatever you needed to it's very 
magical place. I mm. think Calgary is blessed to have it. That's so nice to hear. Because And we did think a lot about that. And prior to opening it, one of the things I would do when I was walking down the street or whatever, or just looking out the window now, because Every building talks to us. It mm-hmm. says something. And you referred to that when you walk into a building, how does it feel? And for example, when I go past the courthouse, it always says guilty to me. <laughs> I don't know why, <laughs> but it does. Like it's such an imposing structure. Yeah. And um, yeah, you just think about how do you make buildings really friendly and inviting and and kind and generous? Yeah. I That is so fascinating because that, that is kind of how the courthouse feels. <laughs> but it, it is it is a, a unique way to to understand the spaces that you inhabit. Mm-hmm. And do you do you have any kind of sense of when you or how when or how you came to understand places with that kind of depth of being able to feel the space? I think I think everybody does. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think though that often we don't pay attention to it. So as I mentioned, the buildings are always talking to us, and if we're open to it, we can hear them. Um, and so the other thing I would say, for example, with the new Central Library, we had an amazing team of architects, and in particular, Craig Dykers, who is the head of the team called Snowheta. They're out of Norway. And Craig is somebody who reads a lot. He loves books. He loves people. And he is very sensitive to the sense of place. So it was very important to him that the library reflect Calgary. And that was one of the principles we had as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to make sure it celebrates the light that we have in Calgary, um, that the wood reflects Canadian wood, so BC hemlock and cedar. Um, and the entrance is, the inspiration was the Chinook Arch. So it's a building you wouldn't find in L.A. or Toronto or anywhere all. else. It's Calgary. It is. It, it's so. It's so unique to be able to look at and to conceive of spaces in that in that way. And I feel like in your writing that that you have a really unique way of of bringing that forward for other people to open themselves up to rediscover that they they already know how to do that, but they they don't. The way that you talk about. Um, the idea of Walt Whitman walking past a homeless person on the street and having a big bolsterous <laughs> voice is is something that that opens you up a little bit to see it invites you to see your world differently and I think that's an incredibly unique experience mm. that that you really do give people in your writing. Would you mind <laughs> uh, telling me a little bit about how how does writing come for you? How do you begin writing? Where does it come from? Sometimes it's an image, mm-hmm. uh, or it can be some words. Uh, so the Walt Whitman poem, um, I would walk from my home in Inglewood to the library every day. And often it was the people I saw, or for example, I talk about the homeless building, cardboard homes in the snow. I saw mm-hmm. that in Fort Calgary on the banks. Um, so it is an image, or it's lines, or it's rhythms, the rhythms of footsteps. It's a variety of things. And I have to say, I, there's something about the inspiration, how it comes through. It's, it's magic. It is. There was, I forget which author it was but she said poems came to her backwards mm-hmm. and they were coming through her and she'd catch the tail end of yes. them and write them out backwards and then she'd have to flip them once they were written out and 
it's amazing how how poets for for me my interest is mostly in how poets find poetry because i feel like with with more fiction writers you can sit there you can pound out mm-hmm. some writing and go back and and edit but poetry has this this quality that i almost feel like if you touch it too much it can sometimes get lost in the writing yeah it's true yeah how how do you actually edit your poetry do you edit your poetry oh yes yes <laughs> the first draft is not perfect every time <laughs> what are you yeah, telling i know it's me? crazy sometimes 40 50 60 times it's just going after it word by word line by line edit revise uh there's a group that i sometimes attend on thursday evenings with richard harrison uh where uh you'll get input from everybody around the table um but it's it's a and sometimes I'll I'll put something away for a year or two and then look at it again. That's really an interesting way. Do you find that when you go and and you re- review or revise a poem that you've written that are you do you approach it more from a grammatical structure like these are the rules, here's the structure or how do you how do you hear the edits? It's it's more about a feeling than saying, "Oh, you can't say that here." It's it's the way the line, it's the rhythm, it's the feeling, it's the sound. That's wonderful. That really is. Uh, I think about some of of your writing, and and they have such a calm and and serene presence to them, and I it. Look at me stumbling over my words again. <laughs> um, and it's such a unique quality. It's almost like you're taking the pace of the world and and strapping it back to to a beat that's easier to, to feel things when they come through. Our world is is really fast paced nowadays. Do you find that? Um, do you find that in in your writing, or do you find that in in how you approach the world? The, the slowness, yeah, the, the quietness, yeah. the pace. I think it's the, um, the type of environment that I, I can write, I write in, and it's the only environment. It needs to be very quiet, uh, secluded. Yeah. Um, so I never, ever write at work, for example. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's just that particular, it's almost an enclosure that I go mm. into. That is... It is true. Some, you need the right place to mm-hmm. write. Definitely. Yeah. I remember I remember, I remember listening to a writer talk about having to write only in cafes where people were yes. buzzing Lots around people and, like and milling about yeah. with white noise. But that's, I tried that one time and it was... No. <laughs> it's not, not <laughs> no, for me. No, that's not me. <laughs> yeah. So the poem I keep coming back to, the one that, that closes your book, Yes is called Walking with Walt Whitman Through Calgary's East Side on a Winter's Day. And uh, this this poem, I, I believe, was part of Project Bookmark. Would you mind walking me through that a little bit? Sure, I'd be happy to. So Project Bookmark was, it's the brainchild of Miranda Hill, Lawrence Hill's partner. And the idea was to link landscape and literature. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are now almost 30 bookmarks across Canada, and the majority are in Eastern Canada, though I'm hoping with time that'll change. And my particular poem was installed in East Village, 
and it's the first Alberta bookmark. Um, and the idea is that people can stop, read the poem, and they have a sense of the environment, the landscape that inspired that poem, and they can read it and be in that milieu. Um, it's interesting because I think this week there's a new bookmark being installed, and the first one in Saskatchewan, in Batoche. So slowly there are going to be more and more bookmarks in Western Canada, I hope. Uh, but it was a real honour. I was very proud to have my poem installed in East Village. Permanently? Oh, mm-hmm. black. Yes, permanently. <laughs> <laughs> was it was it something that you submitted for, or was it something no. that you were chosen for? I was chosen. Uh, Sean Hunter, who's a well-known writer here in Calgary, submitted my name in the poem, and it was selected. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That must be a real honor. It is. It's an amazing honor. People are going to be reading your work forever. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, a writer friend of mine who was living, who lives in East Village, said he looked out one night. It was two in the morning, and there was a homeless man reading the poem with his belongings, and uh, he spent a long time just by the plaque. And I really, that makes me happy. I hope that there's some kindness that comes through that poem uh, that is given to the people who read it. Wow. It is, it is a really beautiful poem. I cannot express how much it touched me and how much your entire body of work in this book, yes, really reached out to me. It was real treat to be able to sit there and read it and go through it and thank you so much for that thank you courtney and thank you so much for coming in today for writer's block my pleasure (laughs) jennifer haig's novel heat and light won a literature award from the american academy of arts and letters and was named a best book of 2016 by the new york times the washington post the wall street journal and national public radio Previous books include the novels Faith, The Condition, Baker Towers, and Mrs. Kimball, winner of the Penn Hemingway Award, and the story collection News from Heaven, winner of the Massachusetts Book Award and the Penn New England Award in Fiction. Jennifer Haig's stories have been published in Granta, The Atlantic, The Best American Short Stories Anthology, and many other places. She is a current Guggenheim Fellow. And we spoke with her at the Banff Centre for the Arts, where she was teaching for two weeks. In Heat and Light, Jennifer Haig returns to the Pennsylvania town at the centre of her iconic novel, Baker Towers. In this ambitious, achingly human story of modern America and the conflicting forces at its heart. Forty years ago, Bakerton coal fueled the country. Then the mines closed and the town wore away like a bar of soap. Now Bakerton has been granted a surprise third act. It sits squarely atop the Marcellus Shale, a massive deposit of natural gas. To drill or not to drill, prison guard Richard Devlin leases his mineral rights to finance his dream of farming. He doesn't count on the truck traffic and the nonstop noise, his brother's skepticism, or the paranoia of his wife Shelby, who insists the water smells strange and is poisoning their frail daughter. Meanwhile, his neighbors, organic dairy farmers Mac and Rena, hold out against the drilling until a passionate environmental activist disrupts their lives.
Heat and light depicts a community blessed and cursed by its natural resources. Soaring, ambitious, it zooms from drill rig to shareholders meeting to the Three Mile Island nuclear reactor to the ruined landscape of the Strippens, haunting reminders of Pennsylvania's past energy booms. This is a dispatch from a forgotten America, a work of searing moral clarity from one of the finest writers of her generation, a courageous and necessary book. Jennifer Haig, thank you for making time here in the Banff Centre where you're teaching to chat with us on CJSW Writer's Block. Happy to be here. It's wonderful to uh, be able to have this time with you. Our show usually features authors who are touring through Alberta with a brand new book. And um, in this case, we're going to focus more on the body of your work because um, your, your last book, I think, was Heat and Light and came out a couple years ago. Um, that's the book that we just read a little intro blurb about. And the reason that I really wanted to get you on our show is because I think, having read your books, there are so many parallels between your fictional world of Bakerton, Pennsylvania, and many places here in Alberta, and also on the other side of the Rockies in British Columbia sort of those busted boom towns, mining towns that are having a, a rebirth as part of yet another kind of industry boom. And, um, and then the potential for that to decline once again and what that does to people. So tell us a little bit about uh, what fascinates you about Bakerton, Pennsylvania, which, you know, after reading some of your books, I swear, is a real place. <laughs> Bakerton is a real place to me. I've done three books now set in that town, which is very much modeled on the town where I grew up in northern Appalachia. Um, I grew up in a little coal mining town in western Pennsylvania, about 70 miles west of nowhere. When I was a kid there, there were maybe 3,000 people in the town. And now I think there's maybe half that. It's a, a town that really suffered when the coal mines started to decline in the early 1980s. And so by the time I graduated from high school, the town's glory days were well behind it. And um, the future was not looking very bright. So I and most of the people my age and younger have had to move on to find livelihoods in other places. It's a very hard place to make a living. Um, now the town as it exists is full mostly of retired people. You know, people who are living on pensions or Social Security and have some other way to support themselves because the, the base of the economy has just dropped out. Right, and when that base drops out, it has a tremendous, Im the boom has an impact on people's lives, but so does the bust. Right, and as a writer, I've been fascinated with, with both parts of the cycle. My first Bakerton book was called Baker Towers, and it looks at the town in its heyday in the 1940s and 50s when the coal mines were booming. And it was a really vibrant, alive place to live. I have no memory of those times. I'm too young to remember that. But I grew up on stories um, from the older members of my family talking about what that town was like when things were good. And I always had this urge to time travel back to those years. And so um, that was really the impulse behind writing that novel Baker Towers, to time travel back to when things were good in my town. Mm -hmm. Because you could see 
sort of the remnants of that growing up mm. and the stories turned those remnants into something alive for you. Right. So then you finished that book and time went on. What happened for you to come back again to that place? Well, you know... Did you intend that from the no, beginning? No, no, I never did. I, I always wanted to write the story of my hometown. And after Baker Towers, I felt that I had done it because it seemed clear that nothing else was ever going to happen in this place. It was just going to dry up and blow away. And so uh, for several years, I wrote about other things. I wrote a couple books set in Boston, where I now live. And I thought that I had finished with my hometown as a subject. And what changed that was writing a short story. I wrote a single short story about one of the characters in Baker Towers, uh, Joyce Novak, who's a school teacher in the town. I found myself wondering how her life turned out, what her later years were like. So I wrote just this one story, I thought. But that led me to write another story about her sister, one about her younger brother. And before I knew it, I had a collection of short stories, 10 of them, that were either set in Bakerton or involved people who had moved on from Bakerton and were sort of haunted by that place. Mm -hmm. So that book is called News from Heaven. And it deals a lot with the aftermath of the boom, you know, how people find a way to pick up and continue and find other ways to find meaning living in this town whose best days seem to be behind it. Mm -hmm. So after that book was published, I thought, okay, now I've really done it. Uh, then in the mid-2000s, this really unexpected thing happened in my part of Pennsylvania. Um, we learned that we were sitting on top of this massive reserve of natural gas. The Marcellus Shale. The Marcellus Shale, Shale yeah. which had been there all along, and geologists had known about it for 100 years. But until pretty recently, there was no way of getting the gas out of the shale. Because Not it until requires directional drilling and fracking. Correct. Right. Right. So um, fast forward to the late 1990s when this process was developed by Halliburton, this horizontal drilling process that involves fracking. And suddenly the Marcellus Shale looked like a gold mine. Mm -hmm. And what started to happen was people were being approached to lease their mineral rights. And of course, a lot of people did it. You know, this was a town that had seen no prosperity in about 30 years. And suddenly, um, it seemed that everybody in town was holding this winning lottery ticket. So people went for it. And it seemed to me that this was a story that I had to tell. It was too good not to tell. It was this sort of surprise third act for a town that looked like it wasn't ever going to get one. Mm -hmm. So that led me to write Heat and Light. In Heat and Light, well, actually, and also in, in your other work, one of the things that is most fascinating for a reader is how well you are able to shift perspectives. So you're building empathy and, and getting the reader to think about various opposites. You know, the, the opposite, some people want to protect their land, some people want to lease their land just to get the money. And you do that amazingly well because uh, you have sort of equal empathy for all of the characters, including some characters who are not particularly sympathetic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, thank you. That's a great compliment. Um, I really believe that one of the principal reasons we read novels and write novels is that it's the best technology we have to get inside another person's skin. It's the only way we can really look at the world through another person's eyes. And what's important about looking at the world through somebody else's eyes. 
Well, otherwise, the communication becomes impossible, that you very quickly reach a stalemate when you're locked inside your own perspective. It becomes impossible to communicate with people who do not see the world in the same way. Because you're stuck on your position. Right. And when I was writing Heat and Light, I realized very quickly that there was no way to do justice to this very complicated story of natural gas extraction without looking at it from many different perspectives. I, I was clear to me as uh, I started doing research about this topic that it was far more complex than I had realized and that the people on all sides of this controversy had very good reasons for feeling as they felt and believing as they did. Mm -hmm. So when I was researching the book, um, I talked to you know environmental activists. I talked to farmers who leased their mineral rights and farmers who decided not to lease their mineral rights. I also talked to people who were working in the gas industry. I talked to a lot of guys who worked on drill rigs. And what I learned was that there are no villains in this story. Whatever your opinions about natural gas extraction, there, there, this, is, um, this is a human story. And all the people involved um, are recognizably human. People do imperfect things for perfectly good reasons. And even the idea that what they're doing is imperfect is a matter of perspective as well. You know, a lot of the people I met who work in the gas industry believed they were doing something really good for this town. That's certainly the same in Alberta, for sure. Mm -hmm. There's so many, you know, I, I wasn't an oil and gas worker. Mm -hmm. I work in the creative industries, too. And, yeah, there's, there's no villains anywhere. People are trying to make the best decision they can with the information they have at the time that they're trying to make that decision. Right. And that informs them. One of the characters in, your, your, in Heat and Light, uh, the mom of the little girl who's not well, you know, at first she believed that this was going to be good for their family, and then later, she's became, as she got more information through her child's illness, she started to doubt that they'd made the right decision, right? Right. And that's so human because how, you can't see into the future. Right. You just do the best you can. Right. As you're taking one step in front of the other. It's true. And, you know, these are very complicated decisions. Um, if you look at the contracts people sign when they lease their mineral rights, they go on forever and ever, and they're full of this legal terminology that none of us really understands unless we're attorneys. And so it's really hard to suss out what is the best decision for you and your family and your land. Mm -hmm. And in terms of what happens to the town as a place, um, that too is just sort of buffeted by the winds that swirl through, right? right? People hang on to the town, leave the town. That's also very human. And this attachment that they have, like the characters that come back and try to make sense of, of the, the, the character that is the town itself, it's also really fascinating. You know, this is a town um, whose identity um, came from the work that was done there. This was a town of working people. It was first a, a town of coal miners, and I'm from a family of coal miners. Both of my grandfathers were coal miners. Six of my uncles worked in the mines. I grew up in a company town, and every family in town had some connection to the mines. I mean, in many ways, you could say that coal mining is not a dream job. It's very hard work. 
But on the other hand, it creates this real sense of community where everybody's fortunes are tied to the minds doing well. So there's this real sense of being on the same side and pulling together. It's this kind of community that, after the mines closed, was, was lost. And you really see the contrast between my earlier book, Baker Towers, and Heat and Light, how the town itself has really fragmented as people have lost this sense of common purpose. In Heat and Light, when um, some of the landowners are signing gas leases, it's a very divisive issue because, of course, not everybody in town owns land or owns enough land or owns land in exactly the right spot that they can sign a gas lease. So the town becomes divided between people who are benefiting from this drilling and people who are paying the price but seeing no benefits at all. Exactly. You know, if you live in this town, whether or not you've signed a gas lease, you're dealing with the, the danger to your air quality and the quality of your water. You're dealing with the constant truck traffic and the noise and the road construction. This affects everybody in town, and yet most people are not benefiting. Right. You, so it is you, a divisive thing. You have thing. The, the light of the flare stack shining into your window all night, but you don't have the, the royalty check. Right. Exactly that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's very familiar to Albertans, too. Mm. So I want to talk a little bit about another theme that it seems to me that you come back to as a writer. You just touched on it. This whole notion of the story of the working class and the mythology, perhaps, that America and Canada are not societies that uh, pay attention to class. It is a myth. Um, and it is a myth that working class people themselves cling to. My own family does not consider themselves working class. You know, you really see it uh, during election cycles in the U.S. where politicians are always talking about standing up for the middle class. Everybody thinks they're middle class. You know, rich people pretend they're middle class. People who work at Walmart like to think of themselves as middle class and everybody in the middle. Um, and I think really it comes down to um, not wanting to root for a losing team. Mm -hmm. The idea of identifying yourself as a working class person is saying, you know, I'm never going to accomplish something more in my life. I'm never going to make a better living for my family or a better future for my children. Nobody wants that identity. And so you never meet people in the U.S. who identify themselves as working class. Even though that's who the, the, the politicians are shilling to. Right. That's, right. that's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, this whole question of class, it's a, it's a very uncomfortable subject for North Americans generally, I think. We think of European countries um, as, be, as having these elaborate class structures that we don't have here, that we live in this kind of pure meritocracy where anybody can be anything. And it isn't exactly true. It's often exactly untrue. Yes. Where the people who are the most marginalized couldn't pull themselves up by their quote-unquote bootstraps if they tried, because it, it, that notion doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that strikes me um, in, in the years I've been writing novels, that this question of class is a real erasure in American literature. That it's, you don't see people writing books with working class characters. And I think that has everything to do with the economics of publishing. That in order to become an editor in a publishing house, you have to start out in a very low paying job, in a very expensive place in New York City. It's the kind of job that 
a kid like I was would never consider taking when you get out of school. I wouldn't have been able to afford it. You, could, you wouldn't be eating if you could have done it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So the kids who end up taking those entry-level publishing jobs are kids with trust funds, kids with wealthy parents who can pay their rent for a few years or several years while they work their way up the ladder. And so these these wealthy young people who become wealthy older people who become influential editors and gatekeepers. And, you know, like all book people, editors um, fall in love with books and they choose to publish books that reflect the world they know. And so it's, you know, it's, it is a, a natural impulse that they choose to publish books about characters who remind them of the world that is recognizable to them. It's why you see so many books about you know, young people coming of age with their Ivy League educations in New York City, because those are the backgrounds of the editors making the decisions about what to publish. It's, it's a familiar world, so it's a comfortable place to, to edit. Right, exactly. To and yet, I think it is dangerous, because it leads to the misconception that people who work with their hands, people who work with their bodies, are not capable of deep emotion or complex thoughts or complex ideas. And I know that isn't true. I know working people uh, who are extremely intelligent and curious about the world and exquisitely sensitive people. And yet you wouldn't know that by reading a lot of contemporary literature because they're just not represented. Right. Or if they are, they're so stereotyped and blunted that the, a full human doesn't come out in the story. Right. And I truly don't believe that somebody who sits behind a desk looking at a computer is in any way smarter than a guy who works on a gas drill rig. I, I don't believe that is true. I know from experience it isn't. Well, I mean, I'm biased because I come from that world, but, you know, also, what kind of world would you have if your toilet couldn't get fixed or your, you couldn't pump the gas mm -hmm. into your car? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, there's, there's, there's this whole rich world uh, that does come out in your work of the, the working class, written about very lovingly and respectfully. Um, how did you get past the gatekeepers? Any idea? Uh, just stubbornness, I think. You know, I wasn't um, a young prodigy who started publishing novels when I was 22 years old. It, it took me a little bit longer to get there. And part of it was, you know, I had to work for a living. And um, it takes a long time to learn how to be a writer. So it, it takes years. So I, I got there eventually, but I didn't get there quickly. Mm -hmm. I want to, to talk a little bit too about another part of the world that you've created and the world that you come from um, and that you honor, I guess, in, in your creative space. And that's the, the, the frictions in that, it's not just one working class, it's also this immigrant working class where within that there's a hierarchy and there's these rich pockets of culture that are so interesting. Yes, I, you certainly see that in Heat and Light where um, you know, we have this, this town that was looking at gas drilling as this great opportunity. That the reason the town got behind this was there was an expectation that this was going to bring good jobs back to this part of the world the kinds of jobs they had in the coal mining years. These were union jobs where you could graduate from high school and uh, work in the mines, spend your whole career there, put your children through college, and support a whole family on this same job. Uh, the jobs 
that were generated by gas drilling were not those kinds of jobs. They were not union jobs. And by and large, uh, they were jobs that were taken by people coming from a whole different part of the country. You know, gas drilling is much more technology intensive than coal mining. It's not the kind of job you can graduate from high school and get immediately. And so companies are not hiring local unskilled people. They're bringing in guys from Texas and Oklahoma who've been working on drill rigs for 10 or 15 years. And so the jobs that have been generated by gas drilling um, are, you know, cleaning motel rooms in the days in, or driving trucks, or, you know, working at the lumber yard. So it's, yes, it has generated some employment, but it hasn't brought the mines back. And I think there's been a lot of disappointment around that, that mm -hmm. it's, it has not been the sort of golden ticket that it seemed to be. And it seems to me like there's many cycles of boom and bust within that, the, in the larger cycle. Right. You know, there's a whole flurry of activity as you build a pipeline or, or drill a well, and drill and complete a well. But then those people are all gone. And so, you know, they're not buying milk. They're not having coffee. And so, yeah, perpetually the people who stay put, who are really invested in place, are the ones that are not benefiting the most and are paying the highest price in terms of environment, even, you know, the ways that it's changed its culture, the, the place's culture. Right. For, for example, here, maybe it's the same in Pennsylvania, but um, my kids were teenagers at the peak of the boom. And the amount of money that was in the high school led to a whole lot of social problems within the high school because, you know, not just the rig workers were doing drugs that cost a lot of money, but the high school kids too. Well, you know, it happened a little differently in Pennsylvania um, because so many of the gas workers were coming from a different part of the country. They did not bring their families with them. They knew they were only going to be there, say, for a year. And so their families stayed back in Texas or Oklahoma. So um, it did not really generate a lot of money for the schools because it did, not it did not increase the tax base. People weren't buying property in the town. Um, so it was not that sort of financial windfall that it might have been if people had relocated there and paid taxes in the community and, and contributed in that way to the schools. That just never happened. So what is it like there now? Is it still at, at the peak or is it starting to decline again? Here we've been, you know, we're, we're, we're in our bus cycle again. Things have been very slow in Pennsylvania. And, you know, of course it is a cyclical industry. It's, it's a thing that a lot of people didn't understand um, when, when drilling came in, that it was absolutely tied to the price of gas and oil. So when the prices are high, there's lots of drilling. But right now, you know, we've got a glut of natural gas, and it really isn't cost-effective to drill because, um, you know, it's an expensive technology. It costs money to get that gas out of the shale. So right now, things are just kind of lying dormant, and it's really going to depend entirely on what happens to gas prices. Mm-hmm. I want to just circle back to one of the, the things that we talked about, which was empathy. And I'm curious um, what, what you, you, you know, you've identified that growing up in a place like that, coming back to a place like that, watching it sort of age, um, has influenced your writing. And you have a tremendous empathy for place and the soul of that place. What about the characters that you write about? Um, it, it would seem like there were places in your life 
where you've had to make sense of people who are really complicated and maybe difficult to love or like <laughs> and that you know that also comes out in your writing why is that important how how's that happened for you as a as a writer well you know writing a character is kind of it's kind of like being an actor that it's not my job to pass judgment on the character i'm writing what i have to do is take his side so in the part of the writing process where I'm writing a character who's, say, the CEO of the gas company, who may believe things I don't believe and hold opinions um, I don't hold, I have to suspend my own feelings at that point and take his side in all these questions, even knowing that a month from now I'll be writing a different character who believes the exact opposite. So it's a question of loyalty in a certain way, that I take the side of the character whose point of view I'm writing in. What I'm trying to do is do justice to all these different points of view without preference and trust that the reader is going to make up her own mind about these people. Well, I have to say that you do that exceptionally well. And I want to encourage our, our listeners to find your books and read them because I think they're very evocative of our sense of place and our loyalty to its soul. So thank you so much for making time, Jennifer Haig, on CJSW Writer's Block. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Writer's Block. The opening and closing theme for our show is Cloud Chaser by local band 36. You can hear more music from them at whatis36.com. Mm-hmm.